How many of you still have a smile on your face? You should. I sure do. That was awesome. Well, welcome to September. Really? It seems like we just started songs for the summer. I kicked it off back at the beginning of June, and for 15 weeks now, we've been focusing our attention on what God has to say to us through the Psalms, songs for the summer. It's also my one-year anniversary here. Um, It was a year ago this Sunday, so... (laughs) You know, it seems like an eternity, I mean, just yesterday... Time, uh, time really flies when you're having fun, and Debbie and I have been thoroughly delighted uh, that God has called us to join this fellowship here. It's, it's been an amazing, amazing year for us, and we continue to praise God for just miracles at every turn. For those of you that are uh, curious about our son, he, um, he, he's, it's, it's miracle after miracle after miracle. Debbie returns home tonight after helping them kind of get settled into a new normal. For those of you that don't know him, he just received a kidney transplant two weeks ago, and he's been cleared to start uh, driving today, which is just beyond... uh, It's great. So we're grateful for that. I'd invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 47, if you haven't already figured out that that's how we're going to conclude our summer songs for the summer, is in Psalm 47. Do you remember singing songs in Sunday school? Some of you grew up in a church like I did, or maybe you, you didn't, but you went to a backyard Bible club, Good News Club. Do you remember singing psalms like, This Little Light of Mine? Right, yeah, This Little Light of Mine, I'm going to let it shine. Or, Hide it under a bushel. No, yeah, I'm going to let it shine. Or how about, Deep and Wide. Deep and Wide. There's a fountain flowing deep and wide. Uh, thank, thank you back there, back row. I appreciate that. <laughs> Joining in with me. Well, it, as you look at Psalm 47, and we'll be reading it here again in just a minute, but as you look at Psalm 47, it might bring to mind a little tune that came out many years ago called Clap Your Hands, right? Clap your hands, all ye people, shout on God with a voice of triumph. That's great. And I love that Chorus. I love that tune. I love teaching our children, in my case, my grandchildren, songs like This is the Light of Mine, Deep and Wide, and this song, Clap Your Hands, All You People. But I don't want us to just stop there, because the longer we sit with this psalm, the more just bubbles to the surface, the more emerges from that. This is not just the context for a nice little Sunday school praise tune. This has so much more to offer us this morning, and so we're going to invest some time looking uh, deeply into that. So let's, let's read through the psalm again. You can just follow along. It's on the screen. You may have your paper Bible in front of you. You may have a digital version. Follow along as we go through this psalm. I'll read it out loud for us, beginning with verse 1. To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves, Selah. Verse 5, which is a bit of a standalone verse, God has gone up with a shout, the Lord 
with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on His holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. You may have already picked up that this is another hymn. It's a Hebrew poem put to music. It's a hymn that was meant to be sung, and that's why we have sung it this morning. That's why we're praising God with with song. There are basically two stanzas, and then there's an interlude in the middle. In verse 1, there is a call or an invitation to praise. And we're praising God for His character. We're praising God for the victories that He's won. We're praising God for His love. And that's in verses 2 through 4. And then again in verse 6, there's another call or an invitation to praise. And in this case, verses 7 through 9, we're praising God for the fact that He is King over all the earth. There are some literary devices that were employed in this psalm in order to make the point. The psalm itself is, is symmetrical. I've already referenced this. The first four verses, we, we find that uh, the emphasis is that our God is an awesome king. And then verse 5 is a bit of an interlude. But we, we discover that God is a triumphant king. And then the psalm ends, verses 6 through 9, with our God is king of kings. There's repetition that's employed throughout this psalm. You'll notice in verse 1 and then again in verse 9. In a sense, the the psalm is bracketed by all peoples of the earth. When we started the songs for summer this summer, back in the beginning of June, there was was a a psalm about the, the, the joy that we should have for the Lord and how that the righteous ones, that is, the people of Israel who were following God, um, should be praising Him. Well, after several weeks of lamenting through the rest of the Psalms, and Pastor Scott and I have kind of joked about that because I've been able to preach the Psalms that have to do with joy and happiness, and Pastor Scott's been preaching the Psalms that have to do with lament and sorrow. Um, But we're going to end this summer series with another joyful song. And But this time, um, all the peoples of the earth are invited to join in. In verses 2 and then again in 7, again, repetition. God is presented as the great king over all the earth. And then as you've already seen, five times in verses 6 and 7, there's this emphasis on singing praises to God. Now, as a result, this psalm is read in Jewish synagogues around the globe, even today, on Rosh Hashanah, which is the Jewish New Year. And we'll see why in just a minute, why that's so significant and why they do that. Unfortunately, it's also read in Christian uh, churches, many Christian churches, more traditional ones, on Ascension Sunday. Uh, And it's unfortunate because there's a misinterpretation of this psalm. I mean, it's great to read the psalm but it doesn't really fit with the ascension of Jesus. Basically, the idea of this psalm is this. God is king over the whole earth, so let's praise him accordingly. 
Let's submit our whole being to Him in order to worship the God of everything. God is King. Whether we acknowledge Him as such, whether we believe in Him as such, whether we choose to yield to Him as such, He's still King. I recently had a conversation with a a man who doesn't believe in the supernatural, therefore would not believe that God is in fact king and in control. In fact, his statement to me was, I believe there's a God, but he just kind of set things in motion, established the laws of physics, the laws of nature, and kind of walked away. It's the old, for those of you that have studied theology, that's the old watchmaker syndrome. That's not what this psalm presents. This psalm presents that God is king. God is intimately involved in being king, not only over his own people, but over the entire uh, world as well. Here's what I'd like us to do this morning. We're just going to kind of walk our way through these nine verses, just verse by verse. And I want to pull out some things that will should make sense to us and some things that we'll observe. I, I think we'll be surprised. I know I have been surprised. When I first looked at this psalm, it was like, oh, wow, it's only nine verses um, it's all about praise. Thank you very much. Go home, have dinner. No, it, there's, there's so much more here, and so I want to go verse by verse, and then at the end, we'll kind of take a step back again and look at how do some of these verses specifically apply to us. So let's look again at verse 1. In verse 1, we're instructed to clap our hands. All peoples shout to God with loud songs of joy. The, the word for God there is the general term for God. Elohim, the God of creation. That's significant in light of what's going to happen in the next verse. This also appears to be the first time that all peoples are commanded to praise the Lord. The first time so far in Psalms. As I mentioned earlier, we've, we've seen how God's people are called to praise Him with great joy, but... This seems to be the first time where all people are commanded to praise Him as well. You might be sitting there going, well, okay, that's great, but why joy? Why would I want to praise a king with joy? Uh, Because he's not a tyrant. He's not like the kings of the earth. He's not capricious. He's not arrogant. He's not a tyrant. He is, as we'll see, loving and caring and desires the best for his people. So we praise him with joy. We don't do it out of some sort of servile attitude because we have to, we're supposed to, which is what the people in the lands around Israel at this time when the psalm was written, that's how they would have responded to their kings. The king of the earth, the king we worship, is much different, and so we worship him with joy. But then that begs the question, well, then why don't we do this? Why don't we praise or worship like this psalm? Have you ever thought about that? And some of you this morning might have been a bit uncomfortable when Taylor asked us to actually clap. Really? In church? We can do that. We can clap. See, I fear sometimes that stuff in our lives gets in the way of our our just unmitigated joy in worshiping God. True, there may be some things in our lives that have blocked our relationship with Him. We call that sin, open rebellion to what God has asked us to do. There may be that. 
But there just might be just a normal kind of uncomfortableness. We're not used to doing that. I'm afraid if we start clapping too much, we're going to become a little too charismatic or Pentecostal or whatever. But we see in God's Word that there's, there's, there's instruction here on how we're to, at times, cut loose and let loose and, and, and really give God our best and to praise Him with unmitigated joy. <laughs> uh, you, many of you know that we've had preaching meetings throughout the summer with other pastors of churches that are also going through the Psalms. And so Thursday was our last meeting and we were talking about this and trying to make the point, what gets in the way? Why don't we do that? And somebody made the comment, well, if you grew up in Cleveland, if you're a Cleveland Browns fan, you don't know how to celebrate. Okay. <laughs> but here, yeah, but here, that's a Pittsburgh fan clapping there. So but but here in the here in the north here in the north the northwest, we know how to celebrate, right? You you've had a team here in the northwest that's gone and won the Super Bowl and should have won a second one. But uh, the, the point the point being the point being is is that why do we why do we cut loose and praise as Taylor said the timbers? But yet we come to church and we're so sedate. We look at, at times like we've been weaned on a pickle. And, and we're, uh, we're afraid to really give honor and praise and to do it with joy. Let's look at verse 2. For the Lord, the word here is Jehovah, Yahweh. It's a different term. It's, it's the covenant term. It's the word or the title for God that speaks of the covenant love relationship that He has with His people. The Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great King over all the earth. That phrase, Most High, was a title that would be used by the surrounding nations, the Canaanites. They referred to their tribal deities as the Most High. The Most High of Canaan, the Most High of Midian, the Most High of uh, Moab. Jehovah... Yahweh, the God of Israel, is much more, way greater than a mere tribal deity. Therefore, he is to be feared. The King James translates that term as terrible. <laughs> now, not in the term, in the sense that we might use that word, but that's what the King's English says. He is, he is a, a, a God worthy of fear. What is the fear of the Lord? We know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but what is that? There's a lot of different ways to, uh, to translate or interpret that phrase, the fear of the Lord. Let me give you one idea, and I think it's what's emerging out of this text. Here, God is to be feared, which means we, we are to acknowledge uh, in, in humble awareness of our absolute dependence on His mercy and on His sustaining power. That's what the sons of Korah, the authors of this psalm, are doing. They're calling our attention to God as one who is to be acknowledged with humble awareness that we are absolutely dependent on Him for His mercy and His sustaining power. Fill in the blanks. We praise God because He is... Think about that. Why do you praise God? Because He got me a job. Because He led me to my bride. Or my, or my husband, in, in, in the case of women in the, in the room, uh, we, we praise God because He provides for our every needs. Here, the psalmists are saying, we praise God because He is to be feared, because He is to be respected, 
recognizing who God is. God is God and I am not, and therefore I'm going to praise Him because of my understanding of my relationship to Him. We also see that the psalmist described him as a great king over all the earth. Multiple occasions in the Old Testament, Yahweh or Jehovah, the the God of Israel, is described as one who reigns. The Lord reigns. Jehovah reigns over all all the earth. And because he is in this greatest position, then we have the greatest respect for him. As a result of his position comes our respect. In the the waning days of World War II in 1944, the British Prime Minister Winston Churchill is reported to have had a conversation with Joseph Stalin. And he was speaking with Stalin about the importance of what's going to happen after the war was over and the importance of the Soviet Union having good and civil relations with the country of Poland. In fact, Churchill went on to say, and I quote, it was for the freedom and independence of Poland that Britain went into this war. The British feel a sense of moral responsibility to the Polish people, to their spiritual values. It's also important that Poland is a Catholic country, so we can't allow internal developments there to complicate our relations with the Vatican. At which point, Stalin surprised Churchill and he said, well, how many divisions of, how many tank divisions does the Pope of Rome have? Which simply shows us how the world views power. You know, I got more tank divisions than anybody else, so therefore I'm more powerful and I am to be revered. That's that's not the point that's being made here in this psalm. The Lord, the Most High, is to be feared. He's a great king over all the earth. Verse 3. As a result of his position, the sons of Korah remind the audience that he has already demonstrated this. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. When they say that, they have specific historical events in mind that they're referencing, and the people get that. The people understand that. Basically, what they're saying here, for the nations, for the all peoples that are being called to worship God, this is a call to a new allegiance. Either submit to this God of the the earth, of the universe, or you'll be subdued. Before the God of the universe. In fact, it's interesting to me. The, the phrase, clap your hands, that we saw in verse 1, in the previous verse, is frequently translated as an idiom to, to denote um, the striking of hands or the shaking of hands with another individual to confirm a contract. It's like, a, it's like let's shake on it. It's a handshake. In, in a sense, you could say then that what's happening here is This not only is an opportunity to give applause to this great king, but also it's an opportunity for these nations of the earth, the peoples of the earth, to come to an understanding and an agreement regarding their relationship to him. Do you see that? So it's more than just happy clapping. It's it's also we acknowledge who you are and who we are. And that's what the sons of Korah in Psalm 47 are doing, is they're moving beyond and outside the realm of the Jewish nation to call other nations into relationship with them. Now that's significant because unless you're sitting here as a, as a Jew this morning with Jewish background, then we're Gentiles. And as a result of this call, we have come into relationship with the God of the earth, with the God of the universe as well. In verse 4, 
again, they take a step back and they remind their audience, which would be largely Jewish, that, look, God chose our heritage or our inheritance for us. The pride of Jacob, whom he loves. And then they drop that term, Selah, which we've discovered this summer. Is a, it's, an, it's a musical interlude. It's a, it, it's a time when the, uh, the choir director would basically ask the voices to cease and the instruments to continue playing softly in order that the audience can ponder and think about and meditate on what has just been said. Moses, on the plains of Moab, just prior to the nation of Israel going into the land of promise, he reminds them about what God has done for them. That's what the whole book of Deuteronomy is about. It's a repetition of the law that has been given. And in chapter 7, here's what Moses says. You're a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers. This is what this psalm, when it reaches the point at the end of verse 4, Selah, this is what the, the writers of the psalm are wanting the audience to ponder, to think about. God has chosen our inheritance for us. God loves us, and it's strictly because of that. Not for anything that they have done or we have done. We couldn't purchase that kind of relationship. We certainly can't earn it. It's simply chosen by God and a result of His love. Fascinating. God is king over everything. Yet he has chosen to express his love to a particular group of people, and including us, as we'll see in a minute. And, and it's, it goes beyond our comprehension of why God would even do that. And so we're called, we're invited to worship that God, who is God over everything, but to worship him in such a way that we align ourselves under his leadership as well. We struggle with that, though, don't we? See, I think even those of us that have followed Jesus for many years, we wrestle with that at times. In fact, I wrote in my notes a kind of a question posed to myself. What are my tribal deities? What are your tribal deities? Those things that we set up on a throne and we tend to put in front of God priority-wise and worship that as opposed to worshiping the God of, of creation. That's in essence what the sons of Korah are doing here. They're comparing the God of the universe with these Canaanite tribal deities, but in reality, we could do the same. There are things in our lives that, that we'll put on the throne and we'll, we'll worship in place of God. And what God is saying is, I want your worship, and I want you to worship me in joy, because I've chosen you, and because I love you. That's the point, I think, of verse 4, and that's why there's a Selah at the end of that verse. In verse 5, this is the breaking point between the two stanzas. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Uh, the term gone up 
could also be translated, in fact, your Bible may have this term translated this way, as ascended. That's why this verse is, this psalm was read on Ascension Sunday, because um, of the, simply of the term ascended. It's, unfortunately, that's a misinterpretation, because this doesn't really have anything to do with Jesus ascending into heaven. This is probably a reference, though, to the Ark of the Covenant being uh, brought into Jerusalem by David, either in 2 Samuel 6 or uh, possibly by Solomon after the temple had been constructed in 2 Chronicles 5. The the Ark of the Covenant would be that uh, visible, physical expression of the God of Israel. And so God has gone up with a shout, and when they brought the Ark into Jerusalem, that's exactly what they did. You remember the story, that's where David just danced with all of his might, is what the scripture says. In joy, because God was, or the representation of God was coming into the holy place in Jerusalem. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. And it speaks of the triumph of our king, this king that we, that we worship. Verses 6 and 7. Five times this phrase, sing praises, is mentioned. I think mostly for emphasis, to get the point. What's fascinating though, and you wouldn't have known this, but you, do, you will now, even this morning as Taylor was playing uh, the guitar on that song, you noticed he was, he was striking the... Uh, the uh, What's, what's the word I'm looking for here? The strings of his instrument. He was plucking them. He was strumming them. That literally is how this word is translated. It's a single word, and it, it, that's exactly what it means. It's as if the sons of Korah are saying, your, your voices aren't, aren't enough. We want to include all the instruments as well. So, yes, strum that uh, instrument. Pluck the strings of that harp. Um, Sing praises to God. What's fascinating, though, is that at the end of this uh, verse 7, we're told to sing praises with a psalm. And the actual word that's used there is maskil. We've encountered that word this summer already. The, the term maskil means a psalm that instructs, a psalm that teaches, a psalm that causes one to to think about what he or she is doing. So, again, there's, there's, a, there's a correction here, so to speak. We're not just calling people to unmitigated joy in worship, you know, jumping up, clapping hands, yelling, um, but we're, we're also called to worship God with thoughtfulness, to worship God with instruction, to worship God with skill. Reminded of what the Apostle Paul has to say uh, to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Paul is giving instructions there on various spiritual gifts, and he specifically addresses um, a spiritual gift of, of speaking in languages, speaking in tongues, and saying how that, that should, if it's exercised, how it should be done. And then in verse 15, here's what Paul says. Listen to this. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. And I, I love that healthy correction in God's Word so we don't go off one direction too far or the other direction too far, but we worship God with joy, we sing praises with joy, but we do it with thoughtfulness. 
We do it with skill. We do it having been instructed. Verses 8 and 9. God reigns over the nations. God sits on His holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. This climax actually fulfills uh, verse 10 of the previous psalm. Psalm 46.10, remember that? Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And that's exactly what's occurring here in the very next psalm. This is also an occurrence here where Hebrew poetry is turning into prophecy. This psalm ends on what I would call an eschatological note. It ends on a note that points to something yet to happen in the future. One of the last prophets of the Old Testament, Zechariah, said this in his last chapter, The Lord will be king over all the earth, and on that day the Lord will be one and his name one. That's exactly what these these sons of Korah are saying here in Psalm 47. You have these innumerable uh, princes or leaders and peoples coming together, and they're becoming one people. They're they're no longer going to be outsiders to the covenants that God made with the nation of Israel. They're going to be invited in to the covenants that that God made uh, through Abraham. There's application here uh, for us as well. Think of what the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians 3. Know then that it is those of faith who are of the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. That's Galatians 3, 7 through 9. The Apostle Peter also chimes in in his first letter, 1 Peter 2, 10, where he says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So there's this, there's this connection between what the sons of Korah are saying about the God of the universe, the God of all creation, and how all peoples are being invited to worship Him, and how we now, as 21st century believers in Jesus, have been brought into that fold, so to speak, have been brought into that opportunity to worship that same God. We've gone through these, uh, these verses, but I want to now just take a step back and just, just take uh, kind of a, a, another macroscopic view of this and see if there aren't some things that would make uh, application for us in everyday life. If God is king over the, over the whole earth, then we should praise him accordingly. What are some implications for that, though? What, what does that look like? Well, I believe four things uh, kind of bubble to the surface out of these nine verses. The first one is this. If God is king over the whole earth, then a a proper way of praising Him is to do it with joy, right? And we've we've already made that point pretty strongly this morning. But we, we do it with ongoing, unmitigated joy because of what He's done for us, because of how He's changed our life, because of the fact that He loved us first. We also... Praise Him accordingly by praising Him with awe-filled respect. I had to change that word. It was, I had awe-full respect, but it's awe-filled respect. It's, it's respect for who He is which fills us with awe and puts us in a proper perspective and a proper relationship with Him. 
As we've just seen in verse 7, we also praise Him with what I would call instructed skill or with thoughtfulness. And we do that here. We do that at New Life. This whole summer, we've been uh, singing through each of the psalms that have been preached on. And we, we, do, we do that because we want to be thoughtful about uh, the point that's being made in these, in these psalms. And then finally, in verse 9, uh, I see us as we praise God, we do it collectively. And that's why there's people in this room from all different walks of life, different backgrounds, different, uh, different nationalities. And we, we worship God, we praise God. Because He's King over the whole earth, we praise Him collectively. Throughout this um, summer, we've, we've been looking at, at, at all times. We've, we've been looking for how does this psalm that we're looking at, how does it connect with Jesus? Even though these words aren't found in the text, this is really very clear of what's, what's happening here, is the king that we serve, the sovereign king whom we worship, is none other than Jesus. In fact, when... Jesus came into Galilee, according to Mark, the second gospel. Chapter 1, he proclaimed the gospel of God. He proclaimed good news about God. Here's what he said. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, believe in the gospel, or trust in the gospel. And then in the ensuing verses, he invites several individuals Follow me. That's the best definition for the gospel that I've ever found anywhere. Mark chapter 1. It's about God's kingdom. It's about God's supreme rule or reign over our human hearts. It's about uh, changing our thinking, repenting, changing our mind and our perspective about that truth, and then trusting in that truth. And then it's about following in the footsteps of Jesus. That's the gospel. And we can do that because Jesus is our king. Jesus is our sovereign king. In fact, in John chapter 12, verse 32, Jesus himself said again, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul makes this a little bit clearer. He says, You who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he's now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Jesus is Jehovah. Jesus is the king over the whole earth. And as a result, all of the people of the earth will acknowledge him, if not now, someday in the future. And God's original intention for his creation is at that point restored. This is what we have an opportunity to celebrate this morning. It's interesting. We started our worship, in a sense, by celebrating kind of in general terms. God, the holiness of God in general terms. And the, the, the longer we've progressed through this service, the more specific we've become to the point where we're going to celebrate this morning the Lord's table, communion, the Eucharist, and celebrate the fact that because of the death of Jesus, because of his resurrection, 
we are able to worship Him and follow Him as our sovereign King. For those of you that are are new to our church here uh, this morning, um, communion is something that we celebrate once a month, on the first Sunday of the month typically. Uh, It's what we call, it's, it's the Lord's table. It's, it's not New Life's table. It's not our little exclusive table. It's the Lord's table. So it's not exclusively for members of this church. But it is for those who profess allegiance in Jesus. Who trust in Jesus alone. For His grace and the salvation that comes from His grace. So if you're a follower of Jesus as your Savior and Lord, then you're welcome. Then you're welcome at this table. But if you're not, and maybe you're just here kind of scoping things out, kind of checking things out, but you know you're not a follower of our sovereign King Jesus, then I would invite you not to participate. I would invite you to simply stay in your seat. Maybe think about what you've heard this morning. Think about what we've sung about this morning. Maybe take this time to pray. But for the rest of us, who call Jesus our King, this is a great time to celebrate. Again, too often I think we come to the table with our heads down, kind of trudging as if we're at a funeral or something. Well, we are commemorating the death of Jesus, absolutely, but we're also commemorating the fact that He's risen again and that He is our living King today. I think sometimes we need to run to the table with excitement, with, with joy, because of what he has done for us. So during this next song that Taylor will be leading us, uh, I'd invite you to come down the center aisle. There's actually tables uh, in the front. There's tables in the back. There's a table up in the balcony as well. Um, if you're coming to the front, maybe just come down the center aisle and, and go back to your seats uh, during this song. Pick up the elements Um, at each station, and then return to your seat. We're going to take these together as I read some Scripture. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for uh, the truth that can be found anywhere in Your Word, and especially this morning for the truth in Psalm 47. How that we've been invited to praise You, and now as believers in Jesus, Jesus, You are our King we're going to remember why you're our king. We're going to remember what you've done for us. So we pray that this time would be uh, meaningful for all of us, that it would be significant for us, that you would draw us closer into relationship with you as a result of celebrating together this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.